The Apostle Paul has written this letter, 1 Corinthians, to the church in Corinth. And the purpose of the letter, if you remember, he's addressing some problems within the church. I know we would find it amazing that a church has problems, but if you've been around church for any length of time, you realize that every church has problems, right? If you find a church without a problem, then you probably should stay there, but don't stay there too long because you'll cause the problem. There's no perfect church and they all have issues, but Paul's writing this letter because he wants to correct them. He wants to bring them back to the way that they should be. And we spent chapters one through four, Paul was addressing division within the church, that people had divided. Some were following Paul, some were following Apollo, some were following Peter, and they were, they were basically elevating the men over the message. It was about the cross, but they were, they were following the pastor that they liked the best. And now as we come to, uh, we came to chapter 5, we saw Paul address last week sexual immorality within the church. Or more importantly, it was the fact that church wasn't dealing with the sexual immorality in the church. That people were, they were actually seeing it as a badge of honor or saying, you know, look how tolerant we are. When Paul's saying, no, no, you should be showing, throwing this guy out of the fellowship. Not because he's just, because you don't like him, but because you need to move him outside of the fellowship, the covering of the church, the, the connection, so that he'll turn and repent from his sin. That's, that was the goal, that was the heart of, of, of taking him out of the church and out of the fellowship. And we even transitioned into Matthew chapter 18 on how to deal with problems within a church, you know, going to the person individually. If that doesn't work, bring a couple people with you. If that doesn't work, then bring it to the leaders of the church. If that still doesn't work and they still won't see they're wrong, then you need to remove them from the fellowship. And we talked about that at great length last week. And now as we come to chapter 6, this morning we're going to look at the first, uh, about the first 11 verses. And Paul's going to deal with another issue that is... Well, it's, it was valid in that day, but it's also valid in our day. He's going to answer the question, is it okay for Christians to sue one another? Is it okay for a Christian to take another Christian to court? When can a Christian take somebody to court? He's gonna, we're going to kind of look at those things this morning. Perhaps even this morning, some of you might be stuck in the middle of lawsuits. How do I do this? Well, when you leave here this morning, you're going to know what the Bible says about it. and You can then make your decision based on what the Bible has to say, not on what popular opinion or what the culture has to say. So follow along with me as I read... Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 8, and then we'll come back and talk about them. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous, and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more? things that pertain to this life. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law against brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren, to your brothers. The church in Corinth was dysfunctional. They were settling their disputes in the heathen courts, in the regular courts of that day, the courts of law. Paul is appalled. He wants to know, why aren't you handling these things yourself? Why aren't you keeping them within the family? Why are you going to the courts of the heathens to figure out your problem? Verse 1 begins a list of many questions. Paul says, dare any of you. 
having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. When he says, dare any of you, he's essentially saying, how dare you? How could you? What are you thinking? What's wrong with your mentality? Why are you doing this? They're strong words meant to grab their attention. A more modern translation, the New Living Translation, puts it this way. It says, when one of you has a dispute with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? Now, to fully understand what's taking place here, to understand what's going on, we need to explore the culture of that day in Corinth. Because the only thing we have for a measuring stick is the culture that we know. The culture in Corinth was a little bit different. The Greek people, they were very impressed with and they were wrapped up with the courts of law. They were very philosophical, they were intellectual, they liked to hear arguments. Each Greek city had its public courts. They had a place where they would sit for councils. It was not uncommon for lawsuits to be filed for ridiculous things, much like it is today. It was not uncommon in that day to have a father suing a son or a son suing a father. It would go back and forth for some of the silliest reasons. Family issues were aired out publicly. As a matter of fact, the Greek playwright Aristophanes has one of his characters in one of his plays look at a map and ask where Greece is located. And when it's pointed out to him, he replies this. He says, no, there must be some mistake because he cannot see any lawsuits going on. So lawsuits, suing was a part of their culture. It was something that they'd come, become somewhat fond of. The local judge sat in what was known as the Bema seat of the civil magistrate located in the heart of the marketplace. They didn't have courthouses separate for them to go where trials took place behind closed doors. Instead, what they had was an open-air courthouse, an open-air marketplace where you would go to do your business daily. They would have a court. They would have a problem. They would have a judge sit there. And then what they would do is as one person declared his case, the other person would defend his case. Do you know who the jury was? It was all the people that gathered to hear. Anybody walking by that wanted to take a listen and see what was going on, all of a sudden they became part of the jury. They would put the decision out to the audience. Just whoever was walking by. Talk about airing your dirty laundry for people to hear. Who do you think made up all the juries? All the busybodies in town, right? What's going on? What are they talking about? Who's there? What'd they do now? Who's in trouble? And they go hear the story so they could go talk about it later. So you had the two litigants, the two people were arguing back and forth, they would share, they would share their case, and then it would go to the jury to decide who was right and who was wrong. And again, it would go to the same jury to decide for sentencing what the, what the outcome of the case would be. This wasn't criminal things, this was petty things, this was civil things, this was just disputes and arguments between one another. They were taking it publicly to the courts. The Christians were taking their disputes and they were put on public trial for everyone to hear and decide their case. Isn't there something about a family that says we want to keep our problems within our family? We're not perfect, but we don't want everybody else knowing about it. When Corinth and Greece and like that, they were just airing it out for everybody to hear. And Paul's saying it shouldn't be so. The church should keep its problems within the church, within the body of Christ. We should be able to handle these things without going outside of the body of Christ. That's what Paul's talking about. There's no need to air our dirty laundry and shame the name of Christ or the gospel by the fact that we can't get along on something. We should be able to handle it. Matter of fact, in verse 2, look what he says. He says, don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And since you're going to judge the world... Can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? When Paul says, don't you realize, it implies that they should have known this. It implies that he's talked to them before about this. 
It implies that they should know better than the way that they're acting. And look what he says. In some future days, those who are faithful today, those faithful believers, you and I, we're going to sit in judgment of the world. Now, he's not teaching on that subject, but he's laying it out there like as if this is common knowledge. You as a believer in Jesus Christ, someday you're going to sit in judgment of the world. What's it going to look like? Well, I don't know. He doesn't really give us any indication there. But he's basically telling the people in Corinth, you're capable of dealing with these problems yourself. Handle them within the church. Handle them within your family. There's no need to go to the courts of the unbelievers to solve your problems. Bring them before somebody at the church. After all, someday you're going to judge the world. You might as well start practicing now, dealing with your own problems. In verse 3, Paul elaborates on a little bit of our future judgment. He says not only will we judge the world, but he says we'll also judge angels. Look what it says. Don't you realize that we will judge angels? So you should surely be able to resolve ordinary disputes in this life. He's dealing with a group of hard-headed people, isn't he? No one's willing to compromise. No one's willing to give a little bit. And he says, come on, people, you're going to judge angels someday. Well, what's that going to look like? I don't know. He doesn't really tell us. He just lays it out there. When it comes to angels, we really don't know a whole lot. The Bible does give us some clear things. And just a couple of them here in Psalm 8, it tells us that mankind was made a little lower than the angels. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, it tells us the angels are ministering to those who would believe. So the angels are ministering to us. So based on the verses here in Corinthians and those two other two verses, we can see that we're a little lower than the angels. The angels are ministering to us. But at some day in the future, a believer is going to sit in judgment of the angels. Well, does that mean that someday that if the angel's ministering to me, that someday you're going to get to judge your guardian angel? No, you can't look up and say, Clarence, where were you? Clarence, you dropped the ball. Clarence wasn't here that day. Clarence was on vacation. It's not, that's not what it's all about. One commentator put it this way. He said, the idea of Christians judging angels is fascinating. It does not mean we will sit in judgment of faithful angels as if we could penalize them for letting us down or not being there, but we will have part in judging evil angels. Ooh, who's that? That's Satan. That's the fallen angel. That's the demonic angels. So what Paul's letting us know, at some point, we're going to have part in judging or condemning Satan and the fallen angels to the lake of fire someday. How's it all going to work? I don't know. I don't know. I don't have to understand. I just have to believe it because that's what the word tells me. Someday, that's going to take place. All Paul is saying to the church in Corinth, he's saying, listen, you've got a future in judging angels. You've got a future in judging. You need to start handling it now. How come you can't handle the problems, your disputes rightly here on this earth? Do you really need to go outside of the body of Christ and go to the heathen courts to handle this problem? Verse 4 says, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? What's that mean? It means if Christians are being prepared, if you and I are being prepared right now for the glorious destiny of judging angels someday, why do Corinthian Christians, why do we allow those least esteemed by the church, who's that? Those are the, that's the secular judges, the unbelievers, the people who are outside of the church. Why do we have to go to them to settle our disputes? Can't we work it out within the family? Can't we handle these problems within one another? A fellow Christian should be able to judge fairly and render an impartial verdict. 
So what Paul's saying is basically, if you have a problem with another believer, if you've been wronged by another believer, and you've gone to them and they've failed to listen, you've brought a couple of people to them and they've failed to listen, as, Ma- as, as Jesus said in Matthew 18, you should be able to pick somebody in the church or pick a couple of people in the church, lay out your case before them, allow their decision to be binding, and give them, let them judge your situation, your problem. That's the way that it should work. But that's not the way that it was working in Corinth. In Corinth, they were just simply taking their problems, petty problems, that shouldn't even be brought outside of the body, and they're putting them out, in their, they're airing their dirty laundry in the streets. What would that do to the opinion about the church to the unbelievers? Look at those Christians. They can't even settle their own problems. They're no different than us. They're just like we are. Look at verse 5. I say this to your shame. It is so that there's not a wise man among you. Not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law against brother and at that and that before unbelievers. So the Corinthians look down their noses at heathens. The believer, I can't believe they're looking at unbelievers. But now they're asking the same people who they're looking down at. Can you judge our situation? Can you judge our circumstance? On one hand they're proud of their wisdom. We're wise, we're philosophical, we're smart. But yet we're not smart enough to solve our own problems. What's it really say about them? Paul says, is there not anybody there that can help you with this? Don't you have anybody in the fellowship who's wise enough, old enough, been through enough that can give you an honest opinion about this, that you can trust to make a binding decision over your disputes? In other words, put very practically, there's a problem between two believers. There's got to be somebody in the fellowship that can hear the case, hear your issues, hear your concerns, and then render a verdict that's fair, that's equitable, that makes sense. You should be able, if you were to think of somebody, do you know somebody right now that if you were to have a problem with somebody, I could go to this person. It can't be somebody young. It can't be somebody that's new to the Lord. It needs to be somebody who's experienced and walked with the Lord. Have you noticed how things change over time? Your opinion of things changes when you experience something. You notice the longer you walk with the Lord or the longer you are involved in something, your opinion changes about it. Is that true? I can give you an example. When I was a young police officer, I was brand new. I was probably 20, I don't know, early 20s. 22, 23, 24 years old, something like that. Very young in my 20s. I'm driving my police car through a parking lot one day. And down in Florida, all the parking lots, they have these like medians in the middle. They don't have them here because you have to plow snow. You don't have snow there. So they have medians, medians like maybe like four foot wide grassy medians and there's trees or whatever planted in the middle of them. Makes it look nice. So I'm driving my police car through the parking lot one day and I see a mom sitting on her kid. Kid is underneath mom, face down. Mom is straddling the kid's back. Kid is throwing a temper tantrum like you've never seen before. Kid's yelling and screaming and kicking and everything else. And here I am, a young kid. I don't have any kids of my own at this point. Young guy driving my, my police car through. And I'm thinking, that doesn't look right. Mom shouldn't sit on their kids. There's just something wrong. about this. Is this child abuse? I need to investigate this. So I stop my car. I get out and I go talk to the mom. I say, what are you doing? She goes, oh, he's having a temper tantrum. He'll be okay. Just leave him alone. I said, no, you can't sit on your kid out in public like this. She goes, well, it'd be a lot worse if I let him up. I said, ma'am, you know, you don't understand. You can't sit on your kid out in public. She goes, okay. She goes, but you're going to have a problem when I let him up. And I said, ma'am, you, you, this, it's, it's, I said, I'm not saying it's child abuse, but you can't do that. So she gets up. You know what the kid does? Temper tantrum continues. He starts flailing all over the place. He wants to run out in front of traffic. The situation turned around. I'm sitting on the kid now. Mom is watching me, laughing at me. Now, I'm the one straddling the kid. Kid's throwing a temper tantrum. Mom's laughing. 
Now, those of you that have kids go, yeah, totally, I understand that. I have four kids now. I get it. So what? They, they, kids do that sometimes. I know there's maybe somebody only had one kid and it was the perfect child, never did that. If you'd had more, you'd have understood. Some kids do that. But what my point is, when I was young, I looked at that and go, that can't be right. If I were to drive by that same mom now, hey, I'm praying for you. You know, good luck. You know, he'll come out of it. Just let him, just wait a few minutes. My, my perspective of the situation changed. So if I'm going to go to somebody to help me with the problem or to, to, to judge an issue between me and somebody else, it's going to be somebody who's been around a while. Because I don't want somebody brand new who's, who hasn't experienced life yet. It's got to be somebody that went around for a while. So as Paul's telling them this, he's saying, listen, guys, there's got to be somebody who can help you deal with this problem. So what does this really look like? How do we take what we're learning here in Corinthians? What does it look like for the believer today? It's clear. If there's a problem between one believer and another believer, and both of these people establish the Lord as their authority in their life. That's what I mean. That's my definition of a believer here. Both people say, the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, Holy Spirit, that is the authority in my life. God's word is the authority in my life. Okay? If both people do that, they should be able to go to somebody in the church and say, listen, we're having a dispute, we're having an issue. I want to lay out my case, they'll lay out your case, and will you give us a biblical perspective on how to deal with this problem? Will you let us know who's right and who's wrong? And both people should be able to say, yes, we're going we're to accept whatever that comes to be. Whatever that decision is, it's binding upon both of us. Here's the problem. What happens when there's a dispute between a believer and a non-believer? Or maybe it's two believers, but one just doesn't accept the Lord as the, the authority in their life. What happens when a Christian owns a business and somebody doesn't pay? What happens when a Christian is wronged in some way by, by somebody who's not a Christian? Well, that person who's not a Christian, if they don't see the Lord as the authority in their life, if they don't see God's word as the authority in their life, if they don't recognize the church as the authority in their life, you have to go to the thing that they do recognize as the authority, which is the court system, which, is the, which would be our local court system. Believer to believer, handle it within the family of God. When it goes outside of the church, then you have a decision to make. Do I want to be a victim and just let it go? Or do I want to deal with it in the court system the way that it should be dealt with? The problem comes when you have this unbeliever. They don't recognize the church or the Lord as the authority. In this situation, Paul doesn't really give us an answer. So we're kind of going back to what I think is obvious, and I'm going to look back at Paul's life to kind of kind of defend my answer with you. And my answer is, if it's somebody who doesn't believe and there's a dispute that cannot be worked out, it should be tried to be worked out first. But if not, it's okay to go to the court system. Paul was not against legal actions or the exercising of legal rights. You remember back in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 25, he himself appealed to Caesar. He ex exercised his legal right to be brought before Caesar because he didn't believe he would get a fair trial in Jerusalem. So he himself said, I want to appeal to Caesar. I'm a Roman citizen. I have this right as a Roman citizen. I'm going to appeal to Caesar. So it wasn't like he was discrediting or saying, no, no, we're not part of that. What he's saying is when it comes to smaller issues, we need to work them out within the family of God. Let me give you another example. In October, October of 2003, Calvary Chapel, Fort Lauderdale, uh, had a situation. Down in Broward County, Florida, there's a park called Tradewinds Park. And every year, Tradewinds Park had this big Christmas, or they would call it now a holiday light show, a light festival, kind of like they used to have out at Rocky Gap, where they would, the cars would drive through and they would all set up these lights. 
So Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale paid their $15,000 to enter this program, and they were going to put up a cross that said, Jesus is the reason for the season. And Broward County said, no, you're not. He said, no, no, you can't do that. And they said, well, yes, we can. It's the freedom of speech. We can do that. And Broward County said, no, you're not. What do they do in a case like that? Who's the authority that's recognized by both parties? It would be the local court. So, Broward, so Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale said, you're not going to keep us from sharing the message of the gospel. You can't do that. And they filed a lawsuit against Broward County in the amount of $1. You see, it wasn't about the money. It was about the principle. And the, and the court came back and ruled, yes, it was free speech. And they had to allow Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale to put the cross up and say Jesus is the reason for the season. In a situation like that, they had two options. Either they could say, fine, take their cross and go home. Or they could stand if they felt the Lord wanted them to fight and say, no, that's not right. We have a right to free speech just like you have a right to free speech. And they, they decided to fight and the court system ruled in their favor on that situation. When it comes to a dispute between, between believers, Paul's very clear. He says you should be able to handle that in the family of God, within the church of God, within the house of God. But if it is unsettled or one person doesn't believe, if one person doesn't gonna accept the authority of the church or the Bible or the scriptures or the family, then you're going to have to take it outside. Look at verse 7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying, if you've been wronged by a brother, it's better for you to remain a victim. Just be wrong than to take your brother to court and seek justice. We should suffer personal loss rather than disgrace the name of Christ or his church by showing up in court over something foolish, one believer to another believer. The Corinthians, they were just like the modern-day Americans. They wanted to sue everybody for everything. Everything. It's kind of funny, you turn on the television, what do you see all the time? Commercials for attorneys. Nothing against attorneys, we need them, they're a valuable part of our society. But what do you see? We're going to sue this for this drug or that drug or this class action suit or that class action suit. Sometimes those need to go before a court. Sometimes it should be handled between two believers. The, the, modern, the, the Corinthians were just like us. They were addicted to their own rights. I've got this, this is my right. But in clinging to their rights and holding on to those rights so fiercely, Paul says, you've already, owned, you've already shown utter failure. You already failed. By the fact that you're in court, there's no winner in this. By the fact that you're there, there's no winner in this. Just by going to court against your brother, you're already losing. What are the unbelievers going to think of the church, of the Lord, and of your witnesses when you bring these types of cases before them? One commentator said this. He said it would be better to accept wrong. It would be better to let yourselves be cheated than to defend your rights at the expense of God's glory and the higher good of his kingdom. Ideally, they would have brought the situation to a wise man at the church. If the church failed to render a verdict, Paul would say, trust in God to provide, to restore what you've been wronged in. But here comes the question. If I'm a Christian business owner and somebody fails to pay me for work I'm done, what do I do? What are my options? I say that's up to you and the Lord. 
If it's someone who's a Christian, I'd say bring them before the church. Find somebody that can render a, a binding decision. Go to a Christian arbitrator. See if you can work it out that way. If it's somebody who's not a Christian, you have a choice to make. Either I can just let it go, which that might be the thing that God leads you to do. Or if you feel necessary, you can, I feel within biblical parameters, it's okay to bring them to court in that situation. They don't, they don't, they don't accept the church of the Lord as the authority in their life. So it would be okay to take them to court if that's what you felt like God wanted you to do. But it would, Paul says it would also be perfectly acceptable just to let it go and trust that God will restore what I've been cheated out of. God will provide everything that I need because oftentimes when we stand on what's right, it's not really about what's right. It's about our pride being hurt. It's about us, about us getting, no one's going to step on me. No one's going to not pay me for my work. No one's going to do that to me. I'll show them. I'll teach them. That's the wrong heart. That's the wrong heart. It might be better in that case just to let it go. But I don't see where the Bible would say there's a problem with taking an unbeliever to court because they would not accept any authority but the court. Look at verse 8. He says, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brother. He's kind of made a circle here. In other words, what he's saying is, you guys are the problem. He goes, let me, let me, he goes, if you weren't cheating your brother, we wouldn't be having this conversation. The problem is one Christian is cheating another Christian who's now suing that Christian for cheating on him. He goes, it's, the problem is you're cheating one another. If you would just act the way that you're supposed to, we wouldn't even need to have this conversation. So it's not about can I do this or can I do this. It's behave according to the scriptures. If you would love your brother and sister and not cheat them, there should be no reason really for a Christian to ever want to go to court against another Christian because they shouldn't be treated that way but we know we're all people and we know that things happen. And Paul says, when things happen, bring it before the church. Keep it in the family. Don't air your dirty laundry out for everyone to see. Let's keep it between us. He says, look at the big picture. If Christians weren't wronging and cheating their brothers, we wouldn't even have this problem. But I think this would be a good place to say a question that you might be thinking. What about a criminal case? What about if somebody steals money from me? What about if somebody inflicts harm upon me or upon my family? That's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul's talking about petty civil cases. When it comes to criminal cases, when it comes to a crime being committed, Paul's not saying forget about it. He's not saying let the church deal with it. In Romans chapter 13, Paul told us that it was, an, it was appropriate for the state or the laws of the government to handle criminal cases. But Paul's expecting the Christians to handle the small, petty, civil cases that rise up. Paul's not saying that if you've been wronged by somebody, that all of a sudden you have to let them do whatever they want. You just have to back down. He's not saying that at all. But he is saying that if you've been wronged in a civil matter, if you've been wronged in a petty thing, if you've been wronged by something that doesn't really matter, that you need to bring that to the church and let the church or let the man in the church or men in the church or whoever that you trust to give you a binding decision, whoever you trust to look upon this unbiasedly, he's saying that needs to stick. When Adam Clark said this, he said, those in a religious community who will not submit to a proper arbitration made by persons among themselves should be expelled from the church of God. So if you're the victim of a crime, yes, by all means, report the crime. Send the person to jail if that's what you feel the Lord wants you to do. Be the victim. That's not unbiblical is what Paul's saying. But when it comes to the little stuff, when it comes to, that's my property line. No, that, no your fence is on my property. You're stealing my apples off my apple tree. 
Whatever, when it comes to the little silly stuff, he says, handle that in the house. Don't air that dirty laundry for everyone to see. Now in verse 9, as we come to verse 9, Paul begins to direct his words to the person or to the brother who was doing wrong. Look what he says. He says in verse 9, again, another question. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. To this man that was doing wrong, Paul says, don't you know how serious your sin is? If you're out wronging the people of God, you're unrighteous. You're not going to inherit the kingdom of God any more than any of these other people will. He's not denying the man's faith, but he's evaluating his actions. If a Christian can lie and cheat his brother or sister and be okay with it, wouldn't it be fair to say, are you a Christian at all? It's not the way a Christian should behave. We should be able to work out those things. We shouldn't do that. And in my mind, as I look at this circumstance that Paul's laid out for us in these first eight verses, he, I, I see him referring to a civil infraction where one man persuaded another man to make maybe a, a shoddy investment. And the, and the man who did the persuasion became wealthy off the investment or, get, or gained money while the man who made the investment lost his money. It wasn't a criminal case. It was just something that was kind of undermined. It was kind of slimy. It was kind of, it, it, just, it, it, just, it, was, it was bad business, so to speak. It was a silly thing, but, the, but there's somebody hurt by it. Perhaps the man would say, well, it's just business. You win some, you lose some. Paul says, no, it's not. It's not the way we treat our brothers and sisters. We need to hold our brothers and sisters in high regard. It's not just business. Paul says, don't be deceived. The man who was doing this probably was being deceived. He was probably thinking, ah, it's not that bad. It's not a big deal. Paul says, I want to set you straight. You're in this category. And he lists it. He says, verse 9, do not be deceived. Well, there it comes. Neither fornicators idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, there's the list. There it is. It lays some things out there. There's some hot topics in our society right there. I want to make a couple of points here. We shouldn't think that a Christian, a believer in Christ, who has committed an act of fornication, or homosexuality, or any one of these other sins is automatically excluded from the kingdom of God. Sin is not what excludes us from the kingdom of God. Not believing on Jesus Christ is what excludes us from the kingdom of God. Instead, Paul is using these sins to describe their lifestyle. He's describing what they're all about. He's describing who they are. He's describing what characterizes them. Let me ask you this question. When someone's a hunter and they hunt, you know they're a hunter. You would describe, they're a hunter. How do you know they're a hunter? Well, they have stickers on their car. They'll have bone collector. They'll have maybe something like that. You'll go into their house. You'll find their guns. You'll find whatever it is. They're a hunter. They're a hunter because of their lifestyle, right? Nothing wrong with that. No problems with that whatsoever. It's their, it, it's, it, would, it would be describing their lifestyle. They first started as a hunter. They became a hunter. They got better at it. They've grown in it. They're, they're, fine, they're a hunter. There's not a problem. Fishermen, same thing. Whatever it is, whatever lifestyle it is, whatever hobby somebody has, you can identify them by that lifestyle. Paul's saying this, the occasional 
act of fornication or homosexuality, he's not saying it's no big deal to God. He's not, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, ah, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. It is a big deal. It goes against everything we've been given in Jesus Christ. But what he's describing here by this list is a lifestyle that's lived out day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. It becomes who they are. They're proud of it. They're going to defend it. They're not saying it's wrong. It's not, it's, they're, they're gonna, it's not sin. It's something that Paul's challenging this man on. Is this a one-time incident or is this something that your life is dominated by? But I also want you to notice something else. Homosexuality, it says. That's a big topic in our culture. Paul is not just focused on homosexuality. But if you notice the list, all forms of sexual activity outside of marriage are listed. He said fornication. The, word, the Greek word is pornos. It means sexually immoral people. He says adulterers. That's people who are committing adultery outside of their marriage in a heterosexual relationship. He says homosexuals, and if you're reading the King James, it says effeminate men there, or effeminate. It literally means the passive male partner in a homosexual relationship. He's being very specific there. And he says, he's making it very clear that there's a list of sins that will keep someone out of the kingdom of heaven. Any one of those things will, not just one of those. This area of scripture is clearly condemning homosexuality. But it's not the only thing it's condemning. Many people in our culture, many people have tried to twist this area of scripture and they say, well, it's only condemning a, 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 a homosexual prostitute. That's not what it's condemning. It's condemning all areas of sexual immorality, not just homosexuality. But sometimes the church gets on the soapbox and want to point our fingers at, at a homosexual group and say, that's sin. Well, yes, it is sin, but so is pornography. And so is having an affair on your wife. And so is you know, in, being engaged in sex before marriage. It's all sin, and it's all the same thing. It's not like one is all of a sudden worse than the other. That's what he's pointing out here. But it does mean this. It means that a person who accepts homosexual relationships as a legitimate form of sexual expression and practices, practices these behaviors, void of any repentance, is a person who will not inherit God's kingdom. But that's true about anything that's in this list. Not just homosexuality. Please note that homosexuality is not the only sin on the list. It's listed right along with idolaters. Right along with thieves. Right along with those who covet your lifestyle is living a life of coveting you always want what you don't have you're always seeking what you don't have you always want what somebody else has you're not going to inherit the kingdom of god that's what paul's saying here it's not just homosexuality it's listed right along with drunkards revelers those are people that fight extortioners you see too often in church we like to point at us point our finger at a sin that's not our problem you see, I don't want to talk about the things that might be in my life. I want to talk about the things that aren't in my life, because then I can feel better about myself as I put my finger at you for your problem. So how does the church deal with the homosexual movement in our culture? What do we do about it? What do we what do? We do? How, how should we treat it? Should we, what, 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 is it? what is it that we should be doing? You treat them like anybody else who's unsafe. Like anybody else that's unsaved, you treat them the exact same way. We all probably have family members or friends that are involved in that kind of stuff. If it's part of the church, we remove them. 
because they're going to affect the church negatively, Paul would say. But if they're outside of the church, they're unbelievers, why would you expect an unbeliever to live according to the word of God? That would be silly. That would never happen. Am I going to make up my best friends? Am I going to, you know, is it going to be that way? No, but I'm going to see it as ministry. I'm going to see it as opportunity. I'm going to see it as an opportunity to share God's love. You see, Christians err greatly when they excuse homosexuality. They say, oh, it's no big deal. And they deny that it's sin. That's a big mistake. But they also err greatly when they single it out as a sin that God is uniquely angry with. You see, it's not the only sin that's going to keep somebody out of heaven. It's not the, it might not be your problem. You might look at that list and go, well, the covetousness thing, that's my problem. That, that, there, there's my issue there. Or idolatry or whatever it is. It's, it's, maybe it's not sexual sin. Paul says that's not the only thing that's going to keep somebody out of heaven. But here's what you should be concerned with. If you're practicing one of those things, if that's describing you, if we could go into your home and find the evidence, like for a hunter, you go into a hunter's home, you find the, the antlers on the wall, you find the guns, you find the stickers, you find all this stuff, this, they're a hunter. If we went into your home and went into your mind and we found the evidence of habitual sin, of you practicing these things, of this being your lifestyle, Paul says you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He's not talking about the person who gives in to temptation and fails and then repents and comes back to the Lord. If, when, when someone comes to me and they have the attitude that says, ah, I have all the grace I need, I don't care, I can live however I want, it doesn't really make a difference. I can, it doesn't matter how much I sin, it doesn't really make it. I bring them right to this scripture. You doing any of these things? It says you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But on the other hand, someone will come to you and they'll say, I'm struggling, man. I got this thing in my life. I know it's wrong. I keep falling short. I, keep, I, I, I really want to please the Lord, but I keep making the mistake. I bring them to the scripture to talk about God's grace, God's long suffering. You see, the problem is when you come to an area in your life where you take sin and you go, it's okay. It's the way that God made me. It's, it's, I'm going to allow this in my life. That's where the problem slips in. Not when we're addressing it, when we're living it as though nothing were wrong. When we're teaching others that it's okay. When we're, not, when we're putting it on display for everyone to see as though it's not sin. That's where the problem comes in. Paul says those people aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. As you come across this list, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, maybe there's a struggle in your life with one of these things. Maybe you go, yeah, that's an issue for me. I'm really working on that. Ask yourself this question. Do I know and recognize that this is offensive to the Lord? And am I trying not to do it? Am I repenting when I do do it? Or have I come to the place where it's no big deal? I just accept it. You see, if you've come to the place where it's no big deal and you just accept it, I would say be very, very careful. Because according to Paul's list there, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. That might be the wake-up call that someone needs to hear. But at the same time, someone who's a believer, I would say, if you're struggling in one of these areas, I would say keep going. Don't give up. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. Keep persevering. Keep going. Don't give up. You might get knocked down. Get back up. You see, it's all a matter of our perspective. How do I see it? Do I recognize my failures and my sin as sin and failures? Or do I want to write them off as, eh, not that big of a deal? You see, as I've learned, the closer I get to the Lord, the more undone that I realize I really am. The closer I get to him, the more I learn the word of God, the closer I get, the more I realize 
how much of a sinner I am. It used to be. Years ago, I thought if I could quit drinking and quit looking at pornography, I'd be good. Then God could really use me, and I'd be just the kind of guy for him. And you know what? I did those, I quit those things years ago. And then you know what happens? He goes, well, what about this? What about that thought? He starts working on your mind. Good luck when he gets into your mind. What if everything you think was coming out of your mouth? You see, he's not done. He keeps working on us. He keeps changing us. We keep, he keeps molding us, making us more like him. It's the best part of it. Look what Paul says there in verse 11. He says this, And such, right after he reads this list, And such were some of you. You guys were this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. One commentator wrote this. He said, this is one of the most grace-soaked and blood-bought lines in all the Bible. Amazing. He's looking out at the church in Corinth as he's penning. Well, he's not looking. He's writing a letter, but he's thinking about them. And as he makes this list, he goes, yeah, that's what you guys were. That's what you guys were. Apparently, the church in Corinth consisted of, consisted of a group of fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, and covetousness, and drunkards, revelers, and extortionists. Because as such were some of you. How cool is that? The operative word there is were. I would hope that would be the case in our church. I hope that as we read that list, some of you would go, yeah, that was me. That's who I was. That, that, that was me. If that's you today, you don't have to stay that way. That can be a were for you as well. That was me. I can, I can relate to that, those things. That was me. The church, the Christians in Corinth, they didn't come from Christian homes. They didn't come from good moral upbringing. They were a wild bunch. But they were these things. Because the moment you believe on Jesus Christ, these things go in the past. Paul lists some things there. Some amazing characteristics of the believer. Did you see the great work to those who are willing to accept it? He said three words. Washed, sanctified, and justified. As a believer, I read that list if you don't read verse 11, you get stuck on that list. And you go, man, I still have problems there sometimes. But then you get to verse 11, and you go, wait a minute. I've been washed. I've been sanctified. I've been justified in the blood of Christ. We're washed by the work of Jesus on the cross. It's like something dirty made clean. Something white that had picked up dirt and made clean again. Don't we need that? I need to constantly be washed. I walk through this world, this earth. We see things, we hear things, we say things, we do things. We need to be washed. He says we're sanctified. What does that mean? It means we're set apart. Before someone comes to Christ, who's guiding their world? Who's leading their life? They are. They're going to do what they want, when they want, and how they want. And the Lord says, if you'll come to me, if you'll believe on Jesus Christ, I will set you apart, and I will be the one that leads you. You no longer have to do it yourself. I, I created you for a specific purpose. I gave you the personality I gave you. I gave you all of, your, all of your little things about your life. that I made you just the way I need you to accomplish my purpose in you. That's what a believer gets. Sanctified, set apart. And then it says we're justified. What does justified mean? We remember that from Romans. We're declared just before the court of God. Justified just as if I'd not sinned. You know, there's a difference between being 
not guilty and innocent. You can commit a crime and you can go to court and you can be found not guilty by a judge, but it doesn't mean you're innocent. It means there wasn't enough evidence to convince the people or the person who's deciding on that case to convict you of that crime on that day. But someone who's innocent, that's a whole different story. They can't, the court, doesn't, court system doesn't, doesn't find innocent, they just find not guilty. But when you're justified, what that means is you are innocent before the Lord as pertains to your sins. It's not that you're not guilty of them. It's not that he wipes them under the rug. It's not that he just chooses to look at them. He says, no, no, you're innocent. I've justified you. I've washed you in my blood. I've set you apart. You're just as if I'd never sinned. That's the way that he looks upon you. You go, wow, how can he look upon me that way? Because you're washed in the blood of Christ. Isn't that amazing how it works that way? It's not that we're not guilty. It's not that he just looks aside. No, no, I'm not, I'm not going to hold Rob's sins against him. He goes, I don't see any sin. All right, where's the charges against Rob? There are none. Nothing on the list. I look at that and go, that's impossible. I know that I'm guilty of things. And he goes, no, no, I paid that penalty. I, I, I served the time for that. I, I did the time. I went to the cross for that. That's what the believer gets. We're not, we're not just not guilty. We're innocent. We're justified. We're washed. We're sanctified. We're justified by God's grace through the work of Jesus on the cross. By faith and not by your own deeds, you're made just as if I'd never sinned. Can you, can you even wrap your mind around that, what that looks like? All right, here I am standing before the Lord someday. I'm, I'm shaking on my knees. You know, I did something wrong. He goes, there's nothing, no charges. Come on in. Nothing. And I'm waiting to, you know, to see the screen of my life and I thought this and I did that. No, nope, nothing. Come on in. You're welcome here. There's nothing against you. It's an amazing place that the Christian holds. Don't underestimate the value of being saved. We throw the word around like, I'm saved. What are you saved from? You're saved from your sins. You're saved from eternal damnation. That should cause worship in our hearts alone every time we think about it. Because if you're like me, you're going to fall short again. And every time you fall short, what do you say? I'm saved. I'm not guilty of this. That doesn't mean I keep doing it. I don't keep doing it. I have a desire to serve and please the Lord. I turn away from those things. It's amazing what the Lord has done for us. And I ask him that he'll help us to understand it fully. But I have to close this message with just this thought. If your mind is still stuck back up on that list and about not entering the kingdom of heaven, you're the one in control of that. Because the moment you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you then become washed, sanctified, and justified. But what does it really mean to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? It means I'm giving my life to him. It means I'm accepting what he's done for me. Well, can I just pray a prayer? Well, yeah, it starts by praying a prayer, but it's, it's a decision that you're going to make to follow him for the rest of your life. Does it mean I have to go to church? Not necessarily. You can go to church your whole life and not be saved. You can go to your church. You should go to church because they, the Lord, Lord Paul tells us not to forsake the fellowship of gathering together. But you see, it's about a position in your life. It's about authority in your life. If I'm saved, the Lord and his word are the authority in my life. Yeah, I'll use the other things. I'll use the courts if necessary. But when it comes down to it, he becomes the authority in my life. He's the one that I want to please. It's not My life is not run about, I don't want to sin anymore. My life is run about, I want to do the will of God. Is that the heart that you have? If not, I would ask you to 
Pray and confess the Lord. Forgive, ask him to forgive you for your sins. The amazing thing is he will. And you can walk out of here sanctified, justified, and washed, just like those of us that are. You don't have to walk out of here continuing in that list. We get the ability to be set free from those sins. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. Lord, as we navigate this earth, we run into problems. Should we sue one another? What, is it, what, it, what should the relationship between believers look like? Yet you're faithful to show us. Or we should handle our own problems within the house. But if they're bigger and they need to go outside, then that's okay too. Lord, may our heart and our desire be to do your will. May we truly be people who want to serve you, who want to know your word and declare your truth. Lord, may our heart be filled with worship. Lord, as we walk out of here, as we sing, may we remember that we are washed in the blood, we are sanctified, and we are justified in your eyes. May we walk out of here holding, holding on to that, Lord. And may we live like it. May you just instill that truth into our mind. As we walk through this week, may those words ring, washed, sanctified, justified. Washed, sanctified, justified. May we hear it. May we live it. In Jesus' name, amen.